Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Judicial Selection and American Government. Professor of Law Franklin E. Zimring and Professor of Political Science Nelson W. Polsby share meaningful conversation over a topic more relevant than ever. Listen now and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. All right. We were, we were, uh, do you remember the Tom Stoppard play about a professor? The first line, he's the professor, the professor is standing in front. I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, maybe jumpers. Uh, the professor is standing front and center, and the first word of the play is, secondly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, secondly, we were talking about, about, um, uh, in a presidential election year, um, what sorts of, what sorts of uh, uh, ideas we have in sizing up candidates about what they're going to do about Supreme Court appointments? Now you've got a, a notion, I take it, that that this is a particularly important domain, and it's worth spelling that out. I think that in the year two thousand, that it is. Uh, uh, by all accounts, the most important domain, um, uh, the most important sort of branching uh, in terms of the direction of government uh, in, in this country for some time. I don't think that's always true. Uh, if you were to take uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, I think that uh, his, uh, the number of appointments he's made to the court and the safety with which he's made them, I don't think that that's been an important part of the governmental legacy of the Clinton presidency. But as a result of extraordinarily important appointments that were made in the Reagan and mostly in the Bush years, uh, what you have on the United States Supreme Court is an attempt um, uh, to, to really make an aggressive judicial intervention in the structure of government uh, on the part of, of three and a half judges now. Uh, it, it was a, a brilliant idea to appoint very young, um, uh, hyper, what are called hyper-conservative judges uh, uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Rehnquist, uh, who will have to be replaced. Nick, in Nixon next appointee? Week. No. Uh, he Who's is he? a Nixon appointee. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Justice O'Connor on matters of federalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and what I think is going to happen, um, uh, 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 first of all, in the presidential campaign, is that I think the younger Bush, like the elder Bush, will uh, put himself in the position where he will commit himself to hyper-conservative judicial selection of a kind that could complete that coup, um, and that I think that, um, that he will deliver on that promise if he's elected, uh, so that what you might have uh, is an extraordinarily um, uh, out-of-sync Supreme Court of a kind. And if you don't have that, uh, then you're going to have a court that is going to return uh, very much to the sort of burger court, uh, Warren court, sort of civil liberties interventions. And the kind of country you get as a consequence of that mm -hmm. kind of branching will be a very different country. What are, what are the issues in which you f feel Republican appointees have been out of sync? Of course, not all of them. Uh, David Souter was a 
Reagan appointee. Oh, oh. indeed, and um, even even Kennedy. Uh, uh, Stevens uh, was a Ford appointee. Was a Ford appointee, yeah. but you see, these were all judges who were appointed from a wide mainstream mm -hmm. within one standard deviation mm -hmm. either side of the mean. Mm -hmm. uh, so that they're well, one of the issues when you talk about mean, what what are the issues that are particular? Okay, uh, uh, federalism and the role of states' rights, which. 30 years ago, we never thought we'd be discussing Okay, again. wait. Ma mainstream would be basically anti-states' rights? Is that the Federal deal? dominance. Okay. The, the, the Commerce Clause, okay. we decided that in Wickard versus Filburn sure. in 1940. Okay. Well, go back and read some of the mid-90s uh, Rehnquist Court of wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that um, the situation with respect to federalism uh, has changed over the last 50 years in a very important way in that um, for a very large part of American history, it was impossible to confide responsibilities to the states because you could count on a very large number of the states uh, treating their citizens in a way that was simply unacceptable to everybody else. Uh, uh, and once those conditions alleviated, it seemed to me anyway, that the, the uh, automatic disqualification of the states as executors of public policy uh, had to be re-examined. Is that a... I think that would be a very fair point to make about uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of American states. Uh, but I think my concern even there is that the state level of government has been a parochial one both with regard to the people who hold governmental uh, power and with regard to, uh, to the politics that are practiced there. Uh, I'm not sure that a Alabama in the year 2000 uh, or Louisiana in the year 2000 uh, or California in a bad year has caught up. Uh, has caught up. Well, okay, but that anyway, that elucidates your comment about Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, evidently, she is a, a former state legislator and uh, state official, feels more comfortable confiding responsibilities to the states, and certainly than you do, um, but uh, uh, then it places her differently on the spectrum than if you were to take all the other issues. I think that's right, and yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why federalism has been one of the leading issues, because she's been the fifth vote. Mm -hmm. When you get to judges like Scalia and Thomas, uh, and to some extent Rehnquist, the truth is that the agenda is much broader uh, and is the kind of thing that uh, the term conservative doesn't describe very well. It is a reactionary agenda. It turns out to be as anti-democratic in its thrust uh, well, as, as any that the Warren Court ever was. Well, um, it, my impression, I, you're, the, you're the law professor, so you know the scuttlebutt on this, that, is that uh, uh, Scalia is rather unhappy on the court because he hasn't got, he's, he's, he's not prevailing. He hasn't had the fifth judge that he's yeah. had on federalism as long issues. As, as long as you need a fifth judge, I mean, in some sense, he ought to be the one who's complaining that they're losing rather than... Ah, uh, no, 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 because that is precisely my point about the year 2000 as a decisive moment. Yeah. In the first instance, whenever you appoint a judge from the mainstream, the kind of growth that you get, mm -hmm. the way in which they get socialized in to mm -hmm. the constitutional court, 
uh, is an awful lot like Harry Blackman's career. Mm -hmm. He started off in a death penalty case with a brutal and very effective dissent in Furman versus Georgia. Mm -hmm. He ends up, you know, being uh, the court's either most liberal or second most liberal voice there. You're seeing that, I think, in, in, in substantial part in the development of David Souter. Mm -hmm. If you draw on judges from the political mainstream, then I think the constitutional determinations of the court uh, will pretty much determine themselves. But what I'm suggesting has been quite different uh, since the middle of the first of the Reagan terms about the compact that the Republicans have for judicial appointments is that the whole strategic point of Ed Meese's strategy mm -hmm. was not to select judges from that mainstream one or two deviations either side of the mean, but to get a real agenda judges and to do it uh, uh, with a law and order label um, and to buy a court really uh, that has an activist agenda, but the right kind of activity for that side of the political spectrum. And I think that the, the rumored unhappinesses of, uh, of Nino Scalia uh, are contingent upon a Gore election. Uh, I think that as soon as that kind of political uh, uh, judicial appointment is promised, uh, far from seeing uh, Justice Scalia threatening to resign from the court, uh, I think he'll have the sense that he can very well make his own agenda. I think what you see in that rumored unhappiness is exactly the ambition to use the Supreme Court as a tool. Uh, that well, why wouldn't I mean? Why wouldn't anybody yeah, take that view? That's uh, using the Supreme Court as a tool. Surely you wouldn't. You wouldn't uh, say William Brennan was above or beyond that. Oh, I think that's exactly so right. So using it as a tool is really what one does when one has the tool in one's hands. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's a different kind of tool here in the sense that uh, all Brennan wanted to do and could do was exploit the sort of the way in which mainstream lawyers got socialized into uh, uh, their positions as, uh, uh, as Supreme Court justices, uh, that that led to an identification with, uh, uh, with the downtrodden, with civil liberties, uh, that it became a self-consciously elitist uh, institution, but not one that was an elitist institution trying to protect elites. What you have now is, uh, is the use of the law and order rubric to, to recruit from outside that mainstream and it's the use of an elitist institution to defend elites. Okay, how can we how can we lay people tell when somebody's outside a mainstream? I mean, it was obviously a, uh, this kind of talk uh, was, uh, I suppose, rife during the Bork um, uh, nomination. Uh, here's a guy who's been sitting for I don't know five years on the D.C. Circuit. Um, uh, not reversed much, if at all, uh, participating fully in the work of the court, uh, all of the, nominated for the Supreme Court, and and uh, people say, well, he's not mainstream. How could they tell? Uh, well, in, in the case of Bob Bork, because he wrote a lot um, and um, uh, and, and self-consciously 
um, uh, would indicate his disassociation from, for instance, the Supreme Court's First Amendment work, uh, starting with first principles that were quite stimulating, but very different. Well, why, is, Laura, why is that not mainstream to do that for, for a law professor, which he was most of his life? Uh, well, but, but it, it was exactly that kind of law professor going, uh, 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 taking that idea seriously that was proposed as sort of not mainstream at did the he, time. Did it show up in his work on the appeals court? I think absolutely not. Uh, and well, I think that if you were making the case that the attack on Bork um, uh, was, uh, was, was ill-conceived, uh, you, you would point out that indeed, as a, when you compare the Bork appointment off the D.C. Circuit with the Carswell appointment, sure. uh, if you will, uh, in the 1970s, uh, that... Uh, but that wasn't, Cars that, that wasn't an issue of mainstream. Cars, the issue with Carswell was he was low quality. Uh, I think that's right. And and uh, but I I'm simply you know as a sort of visiting anthropologist from a completely different discipline, um, uh, see the word mainstream, and then you start wondering, well, how can how can they tell? What do they What do we need to know in order to, in order to uh, spot the aliens, so to speak? That's right, and I think that uh, that would be, in in fact, uh, so much a better dialogue about judicial appointment than the dialogues that we've been having. Yeah. And uh, but in a sense, I think we've been set up to avoid that um, uh, by, among other things, the crime issue, because ever since really the Nixon administration. The sole litmus test that becomes part of the political process in judicial selection uh, is, is one of whether you will identify with state power on issues of law and order. Yeah. And, and boy, if you take that seriously enough, uh, that's, uh, you, you can either call that being outside the mainstream or a new mainstream, but it is a, a conception of the judiciary, of the federal judiciary, that scares the hell out of me. Well, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I'm not quite ready to uh, uh, discard the consideration of what Clinton did, uh, because I think um, his appointments, there are only two, uh, uh, Ruth Ginsburg and Steve Breyer, um, have done something to resuscitate uh, what I would call liberal jurisprudence. Um, that is, it, it has seemed to me that in a lot of our, you know, in a lot of the issues that have come up, there hasn't been anybody um, who who uh, speaks for, I suppose, mainstream liberal views. Uh, there's a whole nest of people who will give you the right wing view on things, and then there's a what I what I would call a uh, a uh, a strong sort of judicial activism bunch, but supposing, supposing you'd like to reach, let's say, liberal conclusions without being uh, terribly venturesome about precedents and stuff like that, um, seemed to me that was just a gap. Okay, I that, think since Thurgood Marshall's departure from the court, um, that's a gap, and that seat was filled with Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, 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 before, if you were uh, if you were talking about that kind of judge in the recent history of, of, of uh, 
of the Supreme Constitutional Court. Uh, it seems to have Arthur Goldberg's initials all over it. Uh, not so much Abe Fortas. No. Abe Fortas is a Steve Breyer judge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he was Would a better you... writer and not quite as good a policy analyst. Um, uh, and I think that, that, that for some time, that kind of judge is going to be among the missing, no matter who gets elected year 2000. I think that there's a, a cautiousness, a well, sort of a Steve Breyer cautiousness in judicial Well, but I, I, rather, I rather find that appealing. That is, he's trying to, he's, he's trying to uh, in effect, redecorate the house from within rather than, rather than torching it. And uh, he, he finds good reasons, at least they're appealing to me, on most of his things, not all, obviously. Oh, no, I think... Just, uh, I, I think I, he was I, wrong on line item veto, but, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, that was a much closer thing than I thought was conceivable. But anyway, oh, no, just I, the idea of uh, people with liberal sensibilities who are nevertheless willing to work well within the four corners uh, seemed to me to be uh, something that that uh, the court lacked for a very long period of time. And uh, so, but anyway, that presumably Gore is more likely to appoint such people. If you'd asked me who George Bush, the senior, would have appointed, I would have said, oh, probably somebody just like Potter Stewart. Oh, no, 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 and no, 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 you no. know, wait a minute, yeah. Potter, Potter, I know he didn't, so. <laughs> I'm not defending this on the merits so much as talking about about um, where one naturally places a Bush on the political spectrum. Um, and uh, your point, I think, was that this was a hostage. These were hostages willingly given to uh, the radical right. Absolutely. And, and the, you, f you figure George W. will do the same thing. Is there any reason... I mean, I can't think of any reason to to doubt this, except it is true that in some domains, George W. is doing what George H.W. did, uh, which is uh, take seriously the conventional wisdom and hire people who would tell him the conventional wisdom, as is happening, for example, in foreign affairs. I think that's right, but I think now why why would he would he give away? Well, I suppose he would because it's highly salient to the That's people. Right. And there is absolutely no political loss involved in dealing out the judicial selection yeah. uh, in the short or middle term because only those people care about it and because the law and order issue has so colored the whole question of judicial selection that the, that the Bork debate that you mentioned was the only time uh, uh, really in the, in the modern history of judicial selection, uh, that, that there was ever any other concern except law and order hmm. on, on an issue orientation. The other thing, which is a terrible shadow over judicial selection now, and of course I think the, the biggest issue that is held hostage uh, by this notion is the death penalty. Uh, I'm sort of a, uh, someone who thinks that the United States is so far out of sync uh, with the rest of what's going on on capital punishment, that any uh, within standard deviation mm -hmm. Supreme Court of the United States uh, will, will push the penalty off the screen in 10 or 15 years. and It won't even take uh, a long period of time. But instead what happens 
is that there is so much frustration with this death penalty issue in the way it is that you get uh, bills like the Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 that say that what we really have to dispose of is, is ordinary due process and criminal, uh, criminal review uh, to make the death penalty work. Okay, why don't you put, put your cards on the table. You're against it and the Supreme Court has, not, has held that it's not cruel and unusual punishment, which is the usual way they, they, uh, they get it before the, the court. So at the moment, uh, what the states do is permissible, and a fair number of states have death penalty. Is that a fair statement of the sort of fact situation? Well, I think that's, that, that's part of the facts okay. of, Give of, some of more America. Facts. But I think that the, the other part of the facts is this, that uh, 38 states have death penalties. Okay. Uh, 27 have conducted executions. Uh, the gap between conviction and execution averages 12 or 13 years in the United States. Okay. Uh, one out of every 55 or 60 people on death row is executed annually. People are enormously frustrated with that. And so... Right, now what? Explain. It sounds like lengthy appeals process. I thought your comment a minute ago um, suggested to me that the Supreme Court's attention to this problem is mostly uh, uh, having to do with shortening the appeals process. Was uh, that the, the Supreme Court yeah. has tried to do that. Uh, Congress, uh, unhappy with the progress that they have made, uh, has tried to legislate what is a dramatic cutting back in uh, uh, in the appellate process. See, the problem with the death penalty, I mean, usually, Nelson, if what you have uh, uh, is, is somebody sitting in prison uh, appealing his term of yeah. imprisonment, you know, the prosecutor doesn't mind much because the prosecutor's on the winning team. He's serving his punishment while this process goes on. The problem, as soon as you define the state's objective as killing somebody, mm -hmm. you, you get a different incentive system because as long as the defendant is appealing, the defendant's alive, and as long as the defendant's alive, the prosecutor it's, thinks it's, the defendant is winning. It's scored differently. It's yeah. scored differently. Yeah. And so there is inbuilt in this process a hostility to the appellate process, mm -hmm. which is something really very new in the game. Mm -hmm. and, and so you get... Now, wait a minute. Why is it new? Is it new because, because for the first uh, time... Uh, there's a substantial body of opinion which says you shouldn't kill them at all? Uh, and because capital punishment, as it was practiced in this country, when it was practiced in this country, was practiced without an extensive sure. appellate process. Sure. Yeah. Which, but if you were asked, should we have an extensive appellate process, you'd say yes, right? Would, oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. But that's it seems to me slightly contradictory of the notion of building, building an institution which is uh, where, where things get scored properly and where the institutional incentives are aligned properly for people that get their work done. Oh, I, I mean, think that's absolutely right. And I, so, think, that, that I think that really uh, the, the funny thing, that the, the, the funny thing about the death penalty is that eventually you have to choose uh, between the kind of legal system you would otherwise want yeah. uh, and an efficient death penalty, you can't have both. Yeah. 
so so, so you, I think that the death penalty is the odd man. You out. said we're out of we're we're you're thinking of what the lack of death penalty in Western Europe and places like well, that. I th that there is an astonishing. Uh, uh, movement in developed countries that if you go back just to the end of the Second World War, every major European power was executing mm -hmm. uh, at the close of the Second World War, even though there had been a, a, a drop in execution. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, in the last 50 years, uh, what you have seen without any real coordinated transnational campaign mm -hmm. until quite recently uh, is every developed nation in the, in, in the world except Japan, and they're on their way out, and the United States dropped the penalty mm -hmm. in exactly the pattern that was going on in this country uh, until 1976. Uh, the funny thing then is that once a country drops it, uh, England had a royal commission mm -hmm. in 1953. Mm -hmm. It took them until 1970 to abolish the penalty, right? Now what you have is the English are threatening to send missionaries to the United States. Once they get religion, there is, uh, the, the Turks are not going to be allowed in the European Union unless they execute nobody. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, uh, Boris Yeltsin, at a period of time when he wasn't doing very well in terms of political influence, issued a general amnesty, clemency, to everybody on death row in Russia. Why? For European aid. So I think it goes beyond saying that it's a bit of a trend. It has become an orthodoxy mm -hmm. in developed nations. All of the, the former Commonwealth nations, uh, except the ones in the Caribbean. Uh, um, Singapore? Uh, and Singapore. No, the, the Asian tradition, the, the non-players in this now mm -hmm. are Islamic, mm -hmm. uh, uh, where it is an article of positive theocratic uh, state mm -hmm. policy. Uh, the Asian nations, where the developed Asian nations are the next big battleground. Mm -hmm. The Japanese have probably had 10 hangings in 15 years, and I think that capital punishment is an endangered species. But what's going to go on in Taiwan? And there, what you have is countries that are industrializing faster than they're modernizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I think you're going to have is major struggles around the punishment, and I think you're going to have abolition. Uh, you don't have it in India. You don't have it in China. But I've had uh, abolitionist statesmen, people like Roger Hood mm -hmm. uh, um, of England, tell me that in an odd sense, it would be easier to stop executions in China than it will be in the United States. And the reason, Hood says, is that the Chinese are very practical. That's something that they'll deal about. Or very hierarchical. Like whatever they decide to do can get done. That can get done. That's, yeah. I think that's right, too. Uh, so Why do you suppose the United States is out of whack on this, if it, if, if it is? Well, I think part of it was a historical accident. Uh, you're going to give me a chance to say something impolite about liberal lawyers. Uh, and that is that at the time when Furman versus Georgia uh, was uh, was won in the United States Supreme Court, that's the one about the the, the discretionary death penalty. Okay, uh, and it was a situation that was a five to four decision with no well reasoned opinions on either side of it, and people like Stewart and White in the middle. Mm -hmm unhappy with what they saw as a system of capital punishment. And then four years later, 
uh, in Gregg versus Georgia, what you had was uh, essentially similar statutory death penalties, building on the model penal code, mm -hmm. coming up for review, but you had a court that saw things that it thought were very different. It saw that 35 states, the same states that used to have death penalties, immediately passed new ones. They didn't care what the fine print said. Uh, and it saw that public opinion uh, supported a death penalty for murder by two to one. And what nobody bothered to tell the judges, because nobody knew it in this country, was that wherever in the world death penalties are abolished, public opinion is always opposing that two to one. And the same kind of political and citizen reaction uh, that everybody thought was uniquely American just went with the territory of abolition. Uh, this is a country that has never practiced comparative law or comparative political system scholarship sure. very well. Sure. And we just didn't know to say, hey, look, this is business as usual. Stay the course, guys. Uh, nothing unusual well, about but, this. I mean, but supposing, supposing you think a decision like that ought to follow public opinion. Well, then I think nobody would have ever abolished the death penalty. Um, I think that you could take that position in a, in a principled way um, that, and in fact, it is not the judiciary in all these other countries that took the well, way. I was, I was going to raise that. Our judiciary is somewhat unique in that it has to maintain and generate its own sources of legitimacy. Um, it's not really true in, in countries without the separation of powers. And for, for that, they borrow, the judiciary borrows parliamentary legitimacy. Um, and so maybe the public opinion situation here is actually a, creates a different set of conditions than would have been true where the parliament can say, well, we've got a very long menu of things we can run on and we can, we can buck public opinion on this one. Well, I think it, it, it's partly that. Uh, I think it's partly that uh, moral leadership is something that executive branches of government in, uh, 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 in strong executive nations and that parliamentary government uh, in places like England is more used to uh, than in the United States. Uh, having said that, I think that the pragmatic center of the United States Supreme Court, people like Stevens uh, and Stewart, however, um, if they thought that the court could get away with um, uh, maintaining a path toward abolition in 1976, um, uh, if they knew how uh, expectable the political backlash was. Okay, they would do it. Uh, I think they would, so. They would do it. Okay, but that, that actually yes, um, fortifies my remark, which was that they have to look to their own legitimacy. They can't borrow it from, the, from Congress or from the Parliament. I think that's right. And I think that that was true in Brown versus Board of Education for yeah, the court. Sure. Uh, I think that uh, that has been true for the court uh, in, a, in a crunching way uh, with the later judicial politics of abortion. Okay, but now you're, I mean, where you're coming from is perfectly clear. You obviously think capital punishment is barbaric and a bad idea. Well, I think it's more than that. I also think it's a test case for the governmental structure uh, uh, of the United States as a federal what's, system. What's it a test of? Uh, well, I think that if 
this is not a governmental system that can, in the political circumstances um, of the United States in the first decades of the 21st century, that can't uh, uh, succeed in abolishing capital punishment, then I think that that is an indication that governance isn't working. The government system isn't working, so it's it's a more radical position, oh, well, and it's one that's yeah. much more in your line of business. Well, it is it is a little it is a little radical in the sense that that uh, a a an, an unfriendly reading of what you just said would go this way. This is a man who believes that if a that if a particular bundle of policies isn't executed by the by the government, then the government's no good. That the governmental, it's not that the government's the, the, the no government, good, but the, the governmental system, system is That's no right. The process, if any, any process which produces policies that I don't agree with is no good. That's the unfriendly way to put it. Well, okay. I, or, I would add wanna... only a time dimension to that. All that right. can't in 20 or 30 years over the cycles of concern produce those. Yeah, I think that there have what been. What if you change your mind over 20 years? Uh, you figure it's more not very likely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think there are many such issues, Nelson. I think race was one. I think that uh, 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 segregation in education or residential segregation okay. by law was another such test case. I was going to say that if we really lived in a government that was in the name of either federalism uh, or separation of powers incapable, and I didn't care which branch of government did it, yeah. incapable of announcing and enforcing those norms, then I think it would have been a structural flaw in American government. Okay. Okay. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, hard, to, it's hard to think of a debate among people who frame things that way uh, that reaches any common ground. Um, if they, if they, uh, I think that's, that's right. It's, it's, but 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 I think that everybody has a list of two or three. You think so? Such issues. Well, let me ask you: Are there, um, uh, are there contested issues in the polity uh, of the last century or so? I think. Well, I, that, that, that's one way to think about the Civil War. Isn't I, it? Yes. No. No. I don't. Yeah. I. I don't. I don't ground uh, my uh, my. The, Unbargainable issues uh, in in my analysis. Um, I personally think capital punishment is a bad idea. It's barbaric. It's horrible. Uh, I think it's bad for the people who do it. Um, but those, it seems to me, are different grounds from. The grounds of asking. In other words, in other words, you couldn't count on my vote in the Supreme Court if I, if if uh, uh, a reasoned case were put forward to the notion that it's not unusual and it's not cruel. Um, because it seems to me, public policy and the analysis of the process has to proceed on a kind of an autonomous track. Um, and that means, in effect, that I'm not willing to withdraw my allegiance, in effect, to a political system which doesn't accomplish outcomes that I believe are important. What about the residential segregation case or the educational segregation case? If, if we well, didn't have a Warren court that had delivered Brown versus Board. Well, caste, caste systems, it seems to me, are, are uh, in the first place, completely... Uh, uh, 
they really worked quite well in the South. And you know, what, yeah. what, what happened was when the legal uh, protections of segregation went, social activity, that is to say, residential, residential segregation in particular, uh, increased. Oh, sure. Because a, now it was necessary. Right. Right. So, uh, so uh, are you asking me to be in favor of that? No, I'm not. No, I'm not <laughs> no, no. But the, but, but the question mm. is, I'm asking you whether there are substantive outcomes which are a sine qua non of the quality of the American governmental system. Yeah, probably there, there are, but, but not many. And, okay, I, and, and I think that's right, and too. And I would, I, would, I would say, uh, uh, now, I, I have to take that position, it seems to me. Otherwise, you can quite properly say to me, look, um, would you have noticed uh, Hitler if you'd been living in Germany? Um, or was it, is it just another system to you? And, of course, the answer is, alas, I would have noticed Hitler. Hitler would have noticed me. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> Uh, so uh, it's it's a uh, uh, it. In other words, I don't find it unacceptable that you have some of these views, but um, it's important to get them out on the table early, so that we can find out what aspects of the system are in effect bargainable. That's right, and I, and it, it seems to me that if you that everybody has to have. Uh, a list, a, a sine qua non list, but that it would be disastrous if that list um, had more than three or four or five entries on it. That once that becomes uh, uh, a long list, there is something so fundamentally undemocratic about a well, long list right. of the well, right, unbargainable. Is it your impression, I guess it's my impression, that in the last, say, 20 or 30 years, uh, the shopping list of non-negotiable demands on government has gotten rather long. Uh, I, I think it, it has gotten long and strident and, uh, and that the divides, the sort of the anti-pluralism that is carried over in that, that, the, that this wonderful 1950s Robert Dahl um, uh, notion of overlapping interests. Just uh, out of curiosity, why do you attribute that to Dahl? Um, That's, who this governs? Is, this is, um, I, I will now give you Polsby's fifth law, fourth law. Famous sayings migrate into famous mouths. Uh, Dahl's a famous mouth, but the fact is the idea of overlapping interests greatly precedes who governs. It was, it was maybe the 20s or the 30s. Um, over, overlapping interest, as I understand it, is an idea that goes this way. In a society like the United States, people uh, uh, tend to belong to all sorts of different groups and have all sorts of different components to their identity, um, many of which do not yield straightforward political strategies in the sense that uh, what may be good for yourself as a Roman Catholic is not so good for yourself as a mother or as, or, and so on and on. And the, the conjecture was that this tended to cause um, lines of conflict to be less easy to draw in the United States than in systems uh, which were more stratified or maybe more uh, uh, afflicted with the 
feudal history or something like that. Um, uh, if we didn't have a stratification system which could tell you what people's interests were or likely to be, what the sources of solidarity were in the polity, then what would you call a system where that was, a, that was problematic? And a lot of people, starting with a bunch of Englishmen, uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure as far back as the middle of the 18th century, uh, were calling that something like something approximating uh, pluralism. I think that's right. And I think that my so, association of it with, uh, with Robert Dahl is, is, is more autobiography than anything else. I took my political science in 1963. From? Uh, uh, from uh, the people for whom uh, where where was it? Okay, well, at the Wayne State name, University. Name, name, names. Wayne State University in political sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, Bill Kornhauser. Billy Kornhauser, sure. Well, you know, I helped Dahl with his study of who governs. Um, and that I did. And, and my book, Community Power and Political Theory, is, is in some uh, Bush League way a companion volume, uh, which does the does some theoretical uh, stuff about that so i of course was fascinated <laughs> um and uh Dahl was not a terribly doctrinaire isn't a terribly doctrinaire man and particularly when he's doing political analysis and uh, i have found over the years a lot of people have attributed to him stuff that uh, uh he simply hasn't said, and one of the things he hasn't said is that uh, a pluralistic political system is uh, highly efficient in protecting the interests of all minorities. What he has said quite vehemently in a lot of different places is that there are um, uh, instruments of government such as the U.S. Senate and such as uh, the, the uh, Institution of Judicial Review, which are held to support minorities. And when you look carefully, you see that they support some minorities and not others, yeah, which is yeah. the point you were making sure. a little earlier, but you simply uh, have him on your side. That's right. And, 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 and what I wanted to say about that era and about that notion of pluralism in relation to the point that you were making, Nelson, is that uh, it, it, it doesn't suggest that there's, uh, pluralism doesn't suggest that there's anything inevitably efficient about outcomes. But what it does do is it's optimistic about permanent fault lines uh, dividing uh, a polity uh, in a way that optimistic uh, meaning they don't think permanent fault lines will divide a that's right yeah and and, and okay. the, that kind of optimism was part of a fairly sophisticated theory 30 35 years I think ago. that's I think that's a fair comment but it's it's possible that that reflected their empirical experience that's right <laughs> sure that was <laughs> that was the kind of country we were living in well, 35 maybe, years maybe ago. it still is I don't know um, it's worth it's worth the test. Well, I would like to close by saying that uh, uh, the, the thing that I most regret is that one has to contrive a set of cameras to have a conversation that it would have been good to have in any event and that I've been having all uh, too seldom uh, with the person who's uh, 
uh, involved. Well, come to tea any day at the IGS and we can accommodate you. What time yeah. is tea? Three o'clock. In Three ten minutes, in fact. This room will have tea. <laughs> I will do that and do that soon. And okay. That is as good a closing time, uh, closing sentiment as one can find. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.